Today we are continuing a series on church, Why Bother? And kind of the premise of it is most of us go through life, uh, not just with church, but with life in general, and we have these things we do, the things we're a part of, and sometimes we come to points where we go, is it really worth the time and the effort to be a part of this? Why do I do this? And, and so often, you know, whether it's, whether it's church or, or whether it's some of the ideals we have for our marriages or for our work, or we just get a little discouraged and kind of go, can we actually get where we need to be in this? And, and sometimes it's because we approach church or we approach some of our other areas of life un, unknowingly, unwittingly going to Subway and trying to order a Big Mac. We're just going with the wrong expectations or the wrong perceptions or sometimes we, we have the right ones but they get a little bit out of whack. So through this series we're spending time looking at the four biblical metaphors of what it means for us to follow Jesus, not just individually, but more importantly, what it means to be a church. Because it's so easy to come to church with the wrong perceptions. So far, uh, we've dealt with two metaphors, and we really need all of them. That's the beautiful part, I think, of these metaphors. We need all of them in order to really understand. We can't just go with one, although some of us will gravitate more towards the body image. And some of us will gravitate more towards really wanting church to just be a family. Though we gravitate towards one, we have to have all of them to be balanced. If we just go with the body then we'll end up treating people utilitarian and, and just what can you do and where do you fit and how do you do this. And if we just go with the family, then we're going to become like 90% of the churches in America today that are dead and dying because it just becomes about our needs and our security and our close-knit family and, and not wanting things to be too uncomfortable. We want the predictable that family brings to us. Today we're going to talk about an image that really gets at the really deep ideals of all of our lives. Every single one of us has deep ideals in life. To live something that is meaningful, something that's honorable, something that's courageous, to make an impact. But so often for us, I don't know about you, but I know for me, so often those ideals get clouded by just life in general. And I catch myself, instead of living the ideals... I catch myself spending a lot of time fantasizing about the ideals through movies, through video games, through books. We think about all these wonderful, courageous, honorable things we want to do in life and want to be in life. We think about the marriages we want to have in life. And, and because we don't have them like we want or because we're not sure we can get them, we spend our time, and that's not, nothing wrong with reading and movies and all that stuff, but too often we spend our time spending too much time in the fantasy world living the dreams vicariously. We even do it in church. Sometimes we create these programs that, that teach us and create kind of this make-believe obstacle course that we get to run to that makes us feel like we're living the ideals, these deep ideals we're going to talk about today, but in reality we're just on an obstacle course training for something and we're not really doing them. We end up living life as a spiritual video game rather than actually living it. Today for Father's Day, guys, we, we save the manly topic. In fact, we get to have such a manly video that I can't see for sure, but if there are any small kids in here, the video that we play towards the middle or end of the message, you may want to not let them see because it's fairly graphic. Because the image we're dealing with today, the biblical image we're dealing with what, that describes church, is us following Christ as soldiers 
or as an army. Go ahead and play this clip. What is it about boys, what is it in men in general, that we just love the idea of honor and courage and, and the things that we see there, the words that we see there, the mottos, the creeds that we, that we long for? All of us long for it. You know, my sister-in-law, uh, for my oldest brother's wife, they had several boys. And when they were young, she had this rule. She said, I am never going to allow my kids to play with guns. I'm not going to allow them to watch gun shows. I'm not going to, that's just not going to be possible. And I, I remember going to visit her one time and, and I noticed the kids out in the backyard walking around the yard going like this. And I, I went in and said, well, how's it going? And she says, I've given up on that. There's just something innate about kids. I mean, even if you don't give them a gun, they don't see it. They're going to still pick up a stick. They're going to still be hunters. There's still, there's something innate in all of us that wants to do something honorable and courageous. And, and we, through our society, celebrate it through all the centuries. Most of the heroes of the history books were in some way courageous warriors. Think about it. Why is Lincoln such a great president? We create medals for him. It's called the Medal of Honor. The most decorated guy in World War II was Audie Murphy. Not only did he get decorated in World War II because of his courageous actions, but he became an American icon and a movie star because of his heroism and because of people wanted a hero to look at. It's interesting, he was actually rejected by two branches of the service and finally allowed in the military. He received. The, he was the most decorated soldier both by the U.S. and the most decorated U.S. soldier by foreign countries as well. He received his Medal of Honor because one day he and his company were uh, attacked and it was only like 19 guys with him. They were like half strength or something, what they were supposed to be. They were attacked by hundreds of German infantry and six tanks. And he, at his forward position, says, everybody else pull out go back to the woods to a prepared retreat position, and he stays there all by himself on the phone radioing in artillery coordinates so, people, so the artillery could hit the right targets. And between calling in things, he's taken pot shots until he runs out of ammo. And then right before he runs out of ammo, there's this tank destroyer that gets hit by uh, an enemy shell and starts to burn and the, the, the crew leaves and goes back to the woods with the rest of his men. And when he runs out of ammo, he runs back and jumps up on top of the tank destroyer and takes the 50 caliber and just starts trying to hold him off. He's surrounded by Germans on three sides, literally well over 100 Germans and six tanks. 
And he manages, through his calling in artillery and personally taking out over 50 of them, to hold the attack off. In the middle of it, he's wounded in his leg, shot in his leg. He doesn't leave. He continues till he's out of ammunition. And then he limps back to the woods, refuses medical attention, and organizes a counterattack. He was given the Medal of Honor simply because if he had not done that, his whole troop would have been surrounded and annihilated and the enemy would have achieved a key position and a key victory that day. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to somebody about, about today and, and, and World War II and I, I made a statement that I need to take back today. I made the statement, I wonder if we'll ever see that kind of her- heroics, that kind of courage, that kind of dedication and sacrifice today. And yes, we do see it today. I don't think he was a relative. thought it was kind of funny. His name's actually Murphy as well. But Michael Murphy has received the Medal of Honor recently. He was a Navy SEAL. And he was in Afghanistan. And his SEAL group was trying to ta- track high-level Taliban targets covertly. And they were discovered. And his four guys were attacked by over 40 Taliban. In the mountainous terrain, the only way he could get a radio signal out was to leave the cover and go out in the middle where there was no cover to make a radio signal and he did so and made the radio call and fought until he died received the medal of honor for it even if we never wanted to be in the military in this room even if we're we have a little bit of a difficulty with war there's something innate in all of us that looks at people like this with awe and respect And there's probably, I think for all of us, this aspect of us that wishes that we could accomplish something that honorable, that courageous, that self-sacrificing with our life to receive that level of meaning and purpose in life. Paul refers to us, the church, the followers of Christ, as soldiers. And he refers to us as being in a spiritual battle. Now, a lot of people look at the military language in the church and they'll bash the church over the Crusades. The Crusades were clearly wrong. They were political-driven, not Christian-driven. But Paul talks about this spiritual battle that he calls us to, to rescue the hearts and minds of men from slavery to sin, from slavery to the wounds that are caused by sin. And for me, if you're like me, this concept of spiritual battle is really a hard thing to, to constantly think about, especially because we live in such a nice world, nice homes, nice cars. People are well cared for medically, and, and it's just we don't see the devastating need as evident all around us. But nonetheless, we are in a spiritual battle. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And then Paul builds on that imagery by taking it a step further and talking to us as soldiers in Ephesians 6 where he says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. And then he goes on and describes what that's like. And that's a good study in and of itself. In 2 Timothy, Paul at the time of writing this letter is literally days if not hours away from his execution by Romans. And he writes to Timothy, one of his star disciples, who is the leader of one of the most prominent churches of the day in Ephesus. And he says this, he says, You then, my son, in 2 Timothy 2, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. And here's the point that he makes with him very strong. He says, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. After all, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs, but he wants to please his commanding officer. What does it mean to be a soldier? What's different in a soldier's life compared to a civilian's life? What does the metaphor mean? of us being soldiers in the army of God for our lives today. Later in the same letter, Paul, uh, again, hours before his execution, writes to Timothy at the end and says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. Life for us in so many ways is a battle. The problems we face keep coming back over and over again. We think we've conquered something and something comes back. We think we've we've conquered a problem at work or, or we don't have anybody else to cause problems to us and it happens again. Life is a battle. It comes at us all the time. The pressure, the stress never changes. And sometimes we just get really tired because of the wave upon wave. Is it ever going to end? Is it ever going to get better? Are we ever going to see what we want to see? Paul talks here about finishing well. And finishing well for him has everything to do with understanding life through the eyes of a soldier in the middle of a battle. You see, we all start with these wonderful dreams of what we want to be as parents. Right? And then the press of life and the tension of life comes through and and we find ourselves falling short and we find ourselves coming home tired. We have these great dreams of what we want our marriage to be, maybe very different than what we experience from our parents and and their life. And, and, And yet the pressure of life and the stress of life and the problems of life, they just keep coming and and we can so often get so tired and and then And then our ideals, these deep ideals that we want to live by, these honorable, courageous things that we want to do in life and accomplish in our own lives and through other people's lives become clouded. We become tired. And oftentimes we start to approach our faith and our church life with a metaphor that's completely inadequate. We approach it with a metaphor of a cruise ship you know, are the services good? Do we like the captain? Do we like the crew? Do we like the programs that are going on? Is the entertainment good enough? You know, is there, are we comfortable? Is our cabin well, are, are, are nice? And are we getting our needs met? And 
And it's really just because we're, we're tired and we've lost sense of the true meaning of what God is all about and faith is all about. The cruise ship is such an inadequate metaphor. A better one is the battleship. Christ has called us to be a part of a battleship. Instead of consumer and civilian, we're soldiers. Instead of country club or educational institution, we're an army with a mission and a purpose. Instead of individuals serving together, we are a large army functioning as one. You know, an army is a beautiful thing. Even just an army marching through the streets. Isn't it it one of those things that is just awe-inspiring and a beautiful thing? Much less to think about what did it take to actually accomplish D-Day and how beautiful and how amazing it was for everybody to work together to accomplish this great mission. But it's so easy to settle due to the tiredness and constant pressure. And sometimes we settle and don't keep pressing because it's just we fear we can't measure up. And sometimes we just feel wounded like we've got nothing to give, like we're shooting blanks, like we've got questions and we don't have answers. We've got nothing to give. I want to show you a video that to me is, is a video I've, I've worked with for more than 10 years. And honestly, every time I watch it, I have a hard time holding it together because to me it illustrates so powerfully what we're talking about today. This is a video that's actually very historically accurate. It's a video of Get- from the Gettysburg Battle, and it's, it's the skirmish at Little Round Top. And most historians would say that what you're about to see right here is actually the turning point of the entire Civil War. It's the turning point of the skirmish that day. It's the turning point of the Gettysburg battle. In Gettysburg, most historians would say from that point on, it was a foregone conclusion that the Union Army had won, even though the battle went on for 22 more months. Gettysburg was the turning point, and we get to watch that today. On Little Round Top, at the far left flank of the Union Army that day, was the 20th Maine Regiment, commanded now by a guy named Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain, who wasn't this fantastic military leader. In fact, a year before that, the regiment was formed in Maine, and it was a 1,000 people strong. By the time they get here to this day, this battle, a year later, there's less than 300 of them left. And the only reason they're that many is because the day before this battle takes place, they're reinforced by 70 people who were under guard as deserters who decided to join them. Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain is just a speech professor. He wasn't trained in the military. He was just a speech professor. This is towards the end of the day. They were less than 300 men, and throughout the day, the Confederates had thrown thousands of people at them because they knew, as Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain's commanders had told him, if the left flank caved, the Union Army would be completely defeated. So his orders for the day were, you cannot retreat, you cannot fail. By the time we pick up the clip, the 300 men he started with, over half of them are dead or or out of the battle with serious wounds. The half that are left, 50% of them are fighting wounded. As we pick up the clip, you'll hear them say, if it comes through clearly, they're out of ammunition. And what are they going to do? Go ahead.
Half my men are down. Most of the rest are wounded. The left is too thin, sir. How are we fixed for ammunition? It's almost gone. Sir, we're running out. We don't have much left to shoot with. Some of the boys got nothing at all. Sir, sir, what do we do for ammunition? My boys have to use their bread muskets and they're firing back with them. Sir, we ought to pull out. No, we can't do that. We can't hold them again, sir. You know that. Well, if we don't, they go on by and over the hill and the whole flank caves in. Sir, here they come. Well, we can't run away. If we stay here, we can't shoot. So let's fix bayonets. We'll have the advantage of moving down the hill. They got to be tired, the revs. They got to be close to the end if we are. So fix bayonets. Ellis, wait, Ellis, you take the left wing. I'll take the right. I want a right wheel forward of the whole regiment. What, you mean charge? Yes, but here's what we do. We're going to charge swinging down the hill. Just like we pulled back to this left side of the regiment. Now we're going to swing it down. We swing like a door. We're going to sweep them down the hill just as they come up. Understand? Does everybody understand? Yes, yes sir. sir. Okay, Ellis, you take the left wing. And when I give the command, I want the whole regiment to go forward swinging down to the right. All right, sir. Fine. Move.
Yes, sir, but they're on their way to Richmond, sir. Richmond! Today they've done enough for today. Lawrence, once you meet this fellow from Alabama, Captain Hawkins, this is my brother, Colonel Chambers. Sir. May I have some more? Yes. Sir, Tom, get this man a canteen. Yes, sir. Right this way. Would you believe for the love of Mary? Twice. And how are you, Colonel Dallin? This fine day. They got it in the, the armpit. For the love of God, in the bloody armpit. It's an arm. Only an arm. You gotta lose something. Might as well be an arm. Sometimes it's really difficult for us to realize what kind of battle we're in. To me, this is very realistic of the landscape we walk every day. When I go for a run in the morning or the afternoon, I run by dozens of homes inside which people live who have been physically and sexually abused. They're living with the scars. They have dysfunctional, painful relationships because of the scars. And most importantly and worst of all, they view God through those scars and they can't even see how gracious and good our God is because of those scars. I run by the country club area and I, I run by these wonderful, beautiful homes, beautiful cars, ornate, majestic places. And every single run I run by, I'm sure at least a dozen homes or more of people who have been wildly successful and yet in the last week have pondered the thoughts of suicide. It's a reality. The landscape that we live in, if we see it through spiritual eyes, is so much like this landscape. Dead, dying, hurting, painful people all around. I'm running along with my iPod and listening to messages, just trying to, you know, feed myself, get good ideas, and grow as a preacher. And and people I run by and wave and smile at, with their motivational music and motivational speakers playing on their iPods and their ears. Many of them probably literally hours earlier, because of the fear and anxiety in their life, were in tears wondering if they could make it. The only reason they made it out of their houses today is out of sheer willpower or because of medication, whether it's legal or not. 
to get them out of their houses. The pain, the dying. God has called us to be an army of one that rescues people, their hearts and their minds from the pain and the slavery of sin to the grace and the beauty and the kindness of God. And see, unless we fully get this metaphor of the soldier and the army of this spiritual battle, we can go through the day and never even see that. Never even notice it. In fact, there are many of you in here who have probably had some of those same moments that I just described in the last two or three weeks. And God wants us to be an army to rescue people. The hillsides of our neighborhoods are like this. They're full of people who, when they actually surrender, are just like the captain saying, can I just have a drink of water? Can I just have some water? It's so easy to fall into the trap of just going through life, seeing the pretty faces, seeing the smiles, and not really understanding how many of those have had tears in the last 24 hours. What does it mean when Paul defines us, the church, as followers of Christ with the metaphor of being soldiers in an army? What's the difference in a way a soldier lives versus a civilian? What's the difference in the outlook they have on life? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, we could probably talk about just this video clip for an hour. I'm not going to do that. But I know that they think about one thing different, at least. They think about peace different. For many of us, we think of peace as absence of conflict. We think of peace as, as everything being in order. We think of peace as no anxiety. For a soldier, peace is winning the battle. Continuing to fight until there are no more fights left to have be had. Until no one needs to fight again. And life for us is a constant fight. And sometimes we just get into the position where we say, we want to just sit down. We want to, we want to rest. We want to, we don't want to have to give. We don't want to have to fight again. But the reality is, they're coming, Colonel. What are you going to do? They're coming up the hill. It's not our choice a lot of times. Soldiers think about hardship different. How many of you have talked to an old soldier who's fought in a war and experienced huge hardship and and while they'll tell you it was terrifying and awful, they'll also speak about it as with a sense of pride and satisfaction that they were stretched to the limit and and God showed up or or they survived and, and they look back on it with pride. They think of hardship different. They think about wounds differently. Over half these men were fighting wounded with wounds that would normally send us to the ER and on our backs for days. These men are still picking up rifles and fighting and not just fighting, but they're charging. You know, there's this image that we could have talked about that a lot of people define church as as a hospital. And there's certainly, as you look at a hillside there, there's certainly huge need for hospital and healing, isn't there? And there's huge need in our lives and the people around us for healing in the hospital. But, but when you put it in the context of the battle, those wounds take on different meaning. 
and they become less. How can you get to the point where the, the sergeant who was injured earlier in the day in his arm and continues to fight and then gets shot a second time? How can you get to the point and, and what's worth a life that, uh, worth the effort in a life that allows you to say, it's just an arm? What a fine day, Colonel Darling. It's just an arm. God wants to invite us through being soldiers, through being an army, through following Him, through having this vision of seeing our community for what it is, seeing it for the bloody hillside that our community really is, seeing the wounds all around us and be willing to sacrifice even when we're wounded, even when we don't feel like we have anything to shoot with. Even when we don't feel like we have the answers. We've got no ammo left. We're outnumbered. Everybody under those circumstances would have thought the most rational thing to do was to retreat. You know, so often we fall into the trap in life and, and in church of saying, you know, we really can't do anything until we're all healed up. Or we really can't do anything until we've got everybody equipped and everybody trained and everybody done well. But you know what? You can't find a story of courage and honor of a Medal of Honor recipient or a Distinguished Service Cross or anything great in life that was done from the position of plenty, of abundance, of having absolutely everything you need, of being 100% equipped to do everything you need. And see, God has placed in us this desire to accomplish that kind of a thing. But we sit back and we say, we can't do it until we're all ready. But nobody ever accomplishes something worthy of that honor when we wait until we feel like we're all ready. When we've got all the ammo we need and more. When we've got all the firepower we need and more. The great things in our life that God wants to instill, the honor the courage, the, the meaning that He wants our lives to have are all found by our actions when we're out of ammo, when we're shooting blanks, and the enemy's coming, and He still says, are you willing to fight? Are you willing to say, it's just an arm, Colonel Darling? God's calling us to victory. And, and, and the interesting thing is here, Colonel Chamberlain and his men, there was no guarantee of victory. They could have been overrun that day. They should have been overrun that day. They were so out, outnumbered. They should have lost the entire battle. But it's different for us. Jesus has won the battle. The battle's end is decided. And He's with us. Today, now. So often we approach life from the perspective of our anxieties and our, our, our inefficiencies and our, our deficiencies. But what if we approached life from the perspective of He's with us, He's won. What would you do if He was with you and He's already won the battle? How would you behave differently this week with your faith, with your business, with your family, with your wife, if you believed that He was with you now, and it was won. The outcome is determined. We win. How would you behave differently? That's also one of the invitations of this army and this concept that we're talking about today. God has created us for honorable service in life, for mission, 
You know it, I know it. We all dream of it. It's innate. Even people who don't follow God dream of this very thing, of something that is so honorable and courageous to lay your life down for, and we want this kind of experience for our lives. But it's only worth fighting for when we keep in mind the end result. In 1 Timothy, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, in 6.12, it says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession. Good confession. Do you think much about the fact, you know, we don't always think about that. We don't always think about the spiritual battle, much less the spiritual reality and outcome. Eternal life, we don't talk about it a lot. But it is a beautiful thing. It is a motivating thing. This thing that says we get to live with Christ. We get to be healed. We get to be completely clean of our, of our weaknesses, of our sins. We get, I mean, it's just a beautiful thing. And God has called us, not us alone, but us together to the victory that leads us to that life for ourselves. But he also wants us to take as many people with him as possible. We are an army, the church, called to set people free. God is with us. He's called us. There's a storm. There is an eternal hope. And until that day comes, He is with us. What could change this week for you? If you believe that. If you believed He was with you, not only with you, but He won the battle. He's already declared victory for us as a church, for you as an individual, reaching and healing people's lives, setting them free from the pain of sin and death that they're experiencing all around us. But so often we approach life and we approach these things exactly like even this song approach. And I'm not, and the song's a great song, but it's all me focused. It's all, how are you going to be with me? How are you going to rescue me? But this morning, even as we were praying for the service, I was, I was sitting with a few people praying and, and Marcia Marrier reads to me this verse out of Ephesians 2 that I've read many times. And it's so often when I approach the Bible, I approach it, God, what do you have for me? What are you saying to me? And this verse in, the, in Ephesians 2 was all about how God has prepared good works for us to do. And I approach that and read it saying, God, you've got good works for me to do. But as she read it, I realized the language is not me. It's us. We're not individual soldiers. We're an army. Life, faith, is not just about me. It's about us. The victory he's called us to cannot be achieved just by me or you alone. It's us. But he's guaranteed it. What can we do if we believe God is with us and we learn to function as an army of one? Think about it. How many people's lives can be changed? Don't we long for that? Don't we long for that kind of courage and meaning and sacrifice? Lord, I pray that you would just touch each one of us and that you would continue to draw us quest together 
as your company, as your regiment, as your battalion, whatever, Lord, as a unit that you use, that you find joy in creating victory, victory that brings peace, freedom to other people's lives, victory that is so sweet that even the wounds we have, it's it's just an arm. It's just an arm. What a fine day. Come, Lord, and anoint us and fill us and help us to become that people. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. If you are here and you would like somebody to pray for you, grab a friend to pray, or there'll be people down here if you just want to have somebody pray for you. Have a great day. Happy Father's Day.